Friends, we're living, no doubt, in dangerous days. So as of last night, I think I read there were over 311,000 cases of the coronavirus in the U.S., and those cases have just doubled within the past few days. Over 1,300 deaths reported yesterday. Our president, like all presidents, always the optimist, suggested earlier this week that perhaps a quarter of a million people might die. And who knows? What we do know is that mortuaries in New Orleans are full, that New York City looks like a war zone as civilian parks and facilities are turned into makeshift hospitals. Ed Moore, who preached for us now just a month ago, hard to believe, but was here just a month ago, who pastors right there in Queens, we were talking with him this week and he was sharing a story of one of the members of his own congregation, an ER doctor, just weeping in tears as they had to pull a 27-year-old pregnant mom off a ventilator. It was a seminary professor I took years ago whose 16-year-old daughter is still grasping even right now for life on a ventilator. She's not 86 or even 66, just 16. And friends, that's what, that's what we're living in during the season. And we're watching as the cases which have risen on the coast and they start to move inward and we can naturally become fearful. We can naturally become anxious about what is next for us. How do we understand these dangerous times? Can we trust that we're under the watchful care and control of God? Or is all of this just outside of God? There's a prominent biblical scholar who wrote a piece for Time Magazine this week. And in that piece, he suggested Christianity, in fact, doesn't offer an answer in the midst of COVID's dangers. God, he said, doesn't in fact know everything, nor is he in control of everything. Since God's not in control of it, all he's left to do, and thus all we're left to do, is lament over it. Friend, is that the picture of God that we see in the Bible? Well, I'm going to invite you to turn to Psalm 91. We're going to be thinking about Psalm 91. Let me invite you to turn there now, whether on your phones or in your Bibles. I at least this morning have some of my family here so I can hear their pages turning as they go. Psalm 91. You know, I finished Psalm 90 last week and I was, as I was settling into that sad and sobering reality that we're not going to be able to meet together for some time, I was thinking about where to go from here and I didn't really want to do a sort of a COVID topical series I've seen some sermons on, on how to win with social distancing, how we can flatten the curve without flattening our own spiritual curves, but I didn't want to do anything like that. I didn't really want to go back to 1 Samuel either. This seemed appropriate to return to that when we're all able to return together. Instead, just in my own devotions, I kept reading right into Psalm 91. And as I was reading, I was reminded why the Psalms are Christian's best friend, because they speak to us in every situation. They weep with us. They rejoice with us. They comfort and console us. They wrap spiritual arms around us and lift and strengthen us. That's what the Psalms do. They meet us where we are and they deliver just the words we so often need to hear. You know, one of the great things about the Psalms is that they immerse us in God. Mm-hmm. And when we're immersed in news, as all of us are, right? some of us have more time in our hands, and what do we do? We scroll over and over again through the, ner- through the news, and we can feel our souls drowning. 
with every new death toll, what the Psalms do is they take our eyes off those things. They lift our eyes to the skies. They draw our attention to the one who governs and in fact guides everything. So often when we come to the Bible, we're tempted to ask, you know, what can this text do for me? How can it meet me, serve me right now? What does it tell me practically? But Psalms like Psalm 91 this morning remind us that the key question isn't, what does this text do for us? But what God does it describe for us? What God does it describe for us? Friends, that brings us to Psalm 91. Let's, let's read it together. You can read it right there where you are as I read now. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler or a bird and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions as in his winged feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler or a wall. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense, the judgment of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, or, or cobra perhaps. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Friends, I hope you see what a wonderfully intimate and personal psalm this is for a season like we're in. Luther called it the most distinguished jewel among all the psalms of consolation. And the basic point is the one who truly relies upon God will assuredly receive his protection. That's the basic point. The one who truly relies upon God will assuredly have and receive his protection. And though that biblical scholar in Time Magazine this week suggested that Christianity doesn't, in fact, have much to offer in the midst of dangers like this that we face, Psalm 91 tells a very different story. For it ensures us that we have a God who is our shelter, verses 1 to 2, who is our protector, verses 3 to 13, and who is our savior, verses 14 to 16. That's the basic breakdown. That's how we're going to work through it. God is our, he's our shelter, one to two, our protector, three to 13, and our savior, verses 14 to 16. First, he's our shelter. Verse one, he 
who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Verse 1 serves as a kind of summary for the entire psalm. He's going to return to it again in verse 9, a very similar language. And taken together, both verses 1 and verse 2, what we have are four divine names, the Most High, the Almighty, the Lord, God. And with those names, we have four metaphors for security. We read of shelter, and in the shadow, refuge, and a fortress. Right, Because the Most High... When he is your God, every other threat is brought low. Every other threat before the Most High is cut down. Right? Because these, he's the Almighty, El Shaddai, the one who revealed himself. This is how he did to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The one who sustained them. Right, Those homeless patriarchs, he sustained them in their trying seasons. And so he sustains us in ours. Because he's the Lord Right? Yahweh, the great I am, as he revealed himself to Moses. We can be confident that as he revealed himself to Moses and delivered God's people, so he will also deliver us. Thus, we can run to him. We can hide ourselves in him. We can trust this God to be our shelter. Right? We can abide or rest, as the text says, rest in his shadow. Of course, rest is something we all desire. Rest from a storm, rest from life's travails, rest from this illness. Many of us perhaps would wish we were not sitting where we are, feeling perhaps trapped where we are, but maybe resting on a beach or floating down a river as we were as a family even two weeks ago. But when troubles come, right, we need more than a beach umbrella. We need more than a paddle, an oar, and a canoe if we are to be protected and kept safe. Right? To rest in God's shadow, if you think about it, resting in God's shadow means that you have God standing between you and your trial. He is there before you, standing in between you and the trial. And to know that those trials must, if they come to us, must come through this God. Well, you can rest assured that anything that comes has come from his hand. Right? He will protect all that you need to be protected from and anything that would pass through him is passing through his wise hands. You can rest, therefore, in his shadow to care and to comfort. But perhaps most gloriously, right, it's, this, it's this awesome God the psalmist says. Notice how it refers to him. He's, he's my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So whether this is David, as some would suggest, or whether or not this is Moses, which could be coming right on the heels of Psalm 90, which were from Moses, either way, the psalmist here is speaking. Maybe it's even best it's not named because it can speak to all of us because we can all claim this God as our God. You know, Psalm 90 highlighted God's transcendence, his otherness. It was humbling, even chastening, as we thought of ourselves returning to dust. And thus, we had to number our days before this God. You know, our mortality, in contrast to his eternality, as we thought about last week. Well, this Psalm, Psalm 91, really highlights his imminence. This God who brought forth the mountains, gave birth to the earth and to the world. God, from everlasting to everlasting. The psalmist says, yeah, that God, he's my God my refuge, my fortress, in whom I can trust. He is 
a personal, imminent God, which means he can be our God. He can be your God. Right now, we can claim this God as our own. Now, of course, we don't own him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns every star in the sky, every bird in the air, every mountain, every park, every ounce of creation is his and bows to him. And yet this God who is master over all and governs all and owns all, we can still claim him as our God, right? He's not just Moses's God or Israel's God or Paul's God. He's our God. He can be your God this morning in Jesus Christ right now. Friend, that is an awesome truth, one we have to grasp hold of. You need him, right? We all need him, especially now. Need to know that this God is our God. Why? Because, well, yeah, he's a shelter, we see, but he's also our protector. That's what's being driven at verses 3 to 13. This God who is our shelter is, secondly, he's our protector, our protector. We know he is a refuge and a fortress of protection because notice what all these verses say God does. Notice the promises, right? He will deliver you, verse 3. Cover you, verse 4. In him you will find refuge, verse 4. You will not fear, verse 5. No evil shall befall you. No plague will come near you, verse 10. Such that you will tread on the lion and the adder or the, or the cobra, verse 13. Right? His angels even says, verse 11, will guard you. They will bear you up. Right? There's to be no doubt, no uncertainty, no question, no indecision. No hesitation, no confusion in our minds. The unmistakable and clear message is that God is our protector. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous can run to it and are safe. Proverbs 18.10. And notice how his protection is portrayed. That protection, verse 4. Notice how it's portrayed as, as a mother bird. We see one who covers her young with her pinions, which is just means winged feathers. So God there is being portrayed as a protective parent who lovingly shelters right, her young by bearing them, wrapping those wings protectively around them. But not just that, he's also pictured as a shield. Right? A buckler could also be uh, translated as a wall, right? as a wall, as a rampart. So he's a shield, he's a fortress with walls of impregnable strength. And behind those walls, right in the shelter of those walls, we're safe. Right? Spears and arrows bounce right off them. In the first image, we have provision. In the second, with those walls, we see protection. He lovingly cares for us by powerfully shielding us. Now, some take promises like these in verses 3 to 13, and they, and they make them out to be universal, right? All-encompassing promises. All we have to do is name these promises and claim these promises, have faith that God's able to deliver on these promises, and no harm will come to them who do such things, right? No harm will come. Universal promises. So even this week, you may have, you may have heard that... Uh, that prominent faith healer, Kenneth Copeland, one who calls himself a prophet of God, he came out and he assured that we can all be healed by claiming promises like this. 
He quoted passages like this. And he says, no pestilence will fall upon you. No plague will come to you. He actually brought healing through TV screens. If only I could do that now. I can't do that now. But he promised he could. He actually said even America as a nation was healed this week. Apparently the virus wasn't taking notice though. If we make the Lord our dwelling place, verse 9. If we make the Lord our dwelling place, the most high our refuge. For does that mean that evil will never befall us? That no plague will ever come to our tent? I don't think that's what it means sort of all-encompassingly, universally. COVID, Spanish flu, the plague. Those diseases did not clearly discriminate between Christians and non-Christians. You know, those words for pestilence or plague in verses 3 and verse 6 and verse 10, they're actually used elsewhere as punishments that God sends upon his enemies in Exodus. What, even the punishments he sends when his people break the covenant with him, Deuteronomy. The darkness in verse 6 That's not just a normal darkness. That's a kind of spiritual, supernatural darkness as it's depicted in Job and later in Isaiah. I think verse 8 helps us see that God's promises, that, that God's promises, it's not here that his people will never suffer. It's that they won't finally suffer the judgment that falls upon the wicked. I think those are the promises we can universally and certainly hold to which is why I think others have more rightly taken these promises to be more general as opposed to universal. So there was a a man, some of you may know, Robert Rayburn, and he he was a chaplain during World War II, came back from World War II, and served as a pastor at the famous college church in Wheaton, Illinois. But it wasn't long after serving there that uh, he was called back into duty, though he was assured by his commanding officer, this is at the, during the Korean War, he was assured, yet you won't go overseas, you certainly won't see combat. And yet, weeks later, where does he find himself? But on a night drop behind enemy lines with the 187th Airborne. He was a chaplain, right? The communist regime wasn't respecting any of the Geneva Conventions, so he actually was having to carry a pistol as he was going to drop behind enemy lines in the dead of night. And Psalm 91 was a favorite of his. And so there on the plane... As he's preparing to fall into that night sky, what was he praying? But he was praying that he would not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. He knew God was his shelter, that God was his protector. And so on the plane, that thing rattling about men fearing their lives, Robert Rayburn fell asleep for two hours. And all the men around him were stunned. Like, who is this guy? The chaplain, sound asleep. He's as cool as a cucumber, they thought, right? Who was he? Who is this chaplain? Well, friend, he was, you could say, as cool as a cucumber, not because he thought somehow communist bullets couldn't kill Christians. It wasn't for that reason. No, it was because he knew that he had already been delivered from the greatest judgment and from the greatest fear he could possibly face to stand as a sinner before a holy God. He knew he'd already been delivered from that judgment. Friend, if you're listening to this and you are naturally fearing for your life, 
That's an understandable fear. We all had that fear. Robert Rayburn confessed, yeah, he was on the plane. He too had that fear. But God doesn't want that fear this morning to eclipse what should be an even greater fear for you. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, that we're not to fear those who can kill the body, but the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? That's the one to whom we're all most to fear. We're to fear God, who is justly displeased with all of us in our own sin and rebellion against him. Because in our sin, what have we done? But we have, in fact, taken up arms against God. We've rejected the only good, only wise, only true, sovereign, and benevolent God. This God who has authored us and thus has all authority over us, this is the God the Bible says, and I think we all know in our consciences we've rejected. We've rejected his word, we've rejected his ways, and he's the one that we must fear. But in Christ, we don't have to fear this God. In love, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world. He sent him into the world to bear the punishment, to bear the just wrath of our sin. This is what Jesus bore willingly on the cross as our substitute, right? The righteous one for unrighteous ones, for you and me. He died as a substitute for all of those who would repent of their sins and give their life to him. For them, he bore the penalty, and then he rose. After he died and been laid in the grave, he rose victorious over sin and death. He didn't have to save, but he chose to save in love so that we would not fear judgment and death finally, that we would not fear those things, that we could know this God, this good God is our own refuge and fortress, the one whom, to whom we can look to safety and security. And friend, the beautiful thing is if you fear this God, this God of the scriptures, this God of the gospel, if you fear him, all powerful and all good, as witnessed right there on the cross, if you fear him, you have nothing else to fear. Fear him and you have nothing else to fear to fear. Now to the Christian, the devil wants you to think that when we suffer, God's promises have somehow failed. That's what he always wants us to think, that if in any way we're suffering, that means somewhere along the way, God's own promises have failed. As is always his way, especially in times like this, the devil wants us to distrust and to doubt God's word. But notice, notice in Psalm 91, we're not promised that the terrors of the night will never come, verse 5. We're not promised they'll never come, but that when they do, we don't need to fear them. So look down even for a moment to verse 15. We read in verse 15, when he, the righteous one, calls to me God, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. You see right there, God doesn't promise to spare us from all troubles. He promises to save us in our troubles. But he doesn't promise to spare us from all troubles. He promises to save us in our troubles. You know, actually Satan quoted this psalm to of all people to Jesus. Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 
He takes Jesus during his temptation, right, to the highest point of the temple, drops some maybe 100 plus feet down in the Kidron Valley, and he says to Jesus, listen, throw yourself off, and if God's word is true, then these angels that are promising, promise, or ministering spirits, to, they will guard you, right? They will uphold you. They will bear you up, as, as Psalm 91, 11, and 12 say. So Satan's saying, listen, if God's word's true, right, to put your money where your mouth is, jump, and he'll get you. But just as Jesus saw how Satan was using this passage, Psalm 91, well, he saw how he was, how he was using that passage to, to turn a psalm about trust and to twist it and to turn it into a test, trying to get Jesus to test God. Jesus wouldn't do it, right? He wouldn't do it. He didn't call for those angels to bear him up. And yet there would come a point in Jesus' own life and ministry where God would be faithful to Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, when he would send those ministering spirits to Jesus there, not in the early part of his ministry, but there at the deepest point, the greatest point of, of trial and struggle, and agony, there actually in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is wrestling with what's about to befall him, what does God do? God sends then an angel into that garden to comfort him. Not to spare him from the cross, but to strengthen him for the cross. That's when he sends the angel. Not to spare Jesus from his troubles, but to strengthen him in his troubles. Friend, God did not spare even his own son from trouble. But he did strengthen his son for them. Friend, will he not do the same for you? Right now, will he not do the same for you? This God, he's our shelter. He's our protector. He is lastly, we see in verses 14 to 16, he is our savior. He is our savior. So verses one to two are really the psalmist's own testimony. Notice that pronoun, my. And then in verses three to 13, he holds out those promises which can be ours, the hope held out to us. The, the pronoun we read over and over again is you. And then we get into verses 14 and 16. God speaks now and paints a picture of the one who trusts in him to be his savior. And the pronoun we get there is I. Right, Because he hold, holds fast to me, I, the Lord, will deliver him. I will protect him, answer him, be with him, rescue him, honor him, satisfy him, show him my salvation. Friends, those are glorious promises, all because God promises to be the Savior. He promises to be this Savior. He merely asks, what? That we hold fast to him and that we call out to him. For he will promise, answer us. That's the promise we have, that when we call, this God certainly will answer and he will save. You may know what it's like to try to get someone's attention. So my wife frustratingly knows what it's like to call out to me when food's ready and I come running. But when the trash needs to be taken out, well, somehow I don't hear those calls. They just don't register in my ears. You know what it's like perhaps to call out to your children, maybe to call out to friends, and those friends don't seem to hear. Those around you don't seem to hear. Either because maybe they're distracted, maybe they're disinterested, and thus they don't hear. And your calls go unanswered. We all know what it's like to call out and to feel like we're just calling out into nothingness. There is no response. And yet notice, not so with God. 
Every time we call, he answers. Even, friend, even when your cry is but a whisper, your God still hears. He still answers. Friends, pray. I hope you're praying in this season to this faithful, saving God. Friends, don't give up. Don't give up. When no one else is listening to you, this God is listening to you. He is listening. When no one else seems to have any answers to what's happening, this God does. He knows. He has answers. So pray to him, right? Pour out your hearts to him. You know, I've been, well, let me put it like this. When you first, when you don't even know what to pray, right? A great thing to do is just pray scripture. Just start there. Just pray the Psalms. Pray. That is, that is our language of living in a broken world when we sin, right? The Psalms understand our language. You can pray the Psalms. Pray scripture. Uh, another, pray Valley of Vision. So I meant to grab the little book. I forgot it. Hey, Will, you mind going and grabbing Valley of Vision? It's on my desk. All right? The, pretend this is like a Sunday night and I'm sending my son to go grab books. All right. Uh, at any rate, Valley of Vision. Um, this is a great one. And I've been using that in my own meditations and in prayer life this week. Uh, normally, we have it on the book stall. You can come get it. That's a little harder to do right now. It looks like this. This is the leather-bound copy uh, version. They also have a paperback one. Um, you can actually find this, though, online. You can order a copy of it. We do have a couple copies at, at church. If you really want one, uh, reach out to us. We can find a way to get them to you. You can also search online, Banner of Truth, Valley of Vision. They have many of these prayers as daily devotionals. There was a great one I read this morning on peril. Just meditating. How do we trust in God? How do we pray to God in times of great peril? Right? Let a resource like this help and be an aid to you in such times. Because, friends, right now we're tempted to believe that either God's not good or he's not in control. And yet we've seen even in these last two weeks how God is in fact good. He is in control, Psalm 90 and Psalm 91. He's not confused. God's never caught off guard. He's the most high. He's the almighty one who meets the needs of his people, which means we can rest in him as our shelter. It means we can look to him as our provider. We can be satisfied in him as our savior. Many of us in our homes are realizing now that we're having to settle in for the longer term, certainly longer than we wanted. Our troubles won't pass as quickly as we had hoped. Friends, that's what Psalm 91 is all about. It's about settling in for the long run, settling in for the long run. God doesn't promise to rid us of all of our troubles, but he does call us to seek refuge in him in the midst of those troubles, right? We're to wait patiently, as we watch expectantly for our God to meet us. And while we pray for salvation, we're to trust in the sure and certain promise of his own protection. Friend, are you doing that? Especially in this season. Let's pray. God, we pray. We pray that your word would console us. It would be a balm to our souls and to our hearts that it would both comfort and guide when necessary, rebuke, and then also put arms around us to lift us up. We pray by your spirit that we might be encouraged and edified in your word, deeply in your word, especially in the season when we cannot gather together as we had hoped. 
And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.